everybody. Welcome to the March 2014 edition of the Lesbian Gay Law Notes podcast. I am Matt Skinner, the Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. With me, as always, is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the Chief Editor and Writer of Lesbian Gay Law Notes, the most comprehensive source for information on LGBT legal and legislative news here and abroad. Uh, you ready to go, Art? Yes. All right. We've got some uh, federal district court news uh, uh, on the marriage equality front, and we're going to start with Kentucky. Okay, and we, we should just let listeners to the podcast know that the uh, cover page of this issue of Law Notes says, Virginia and Kentucky <laughs> and Texas, oh my. Yes. We have, we have three states in one month. And right? some unusual ones. That's some the, unusual. Uh, well, yeah. we'll, start, we'll start with Kentucky, uh, which was on February 12th. Uh, this was a lawsuit which was before Judge John G. Haburn II of the Western District of Kentucky, Federal District Court. And this was not a case suing for the right to marry. It was a case suing for recognition for marriages contracted elsewhere. There were three couples here. Uh, two of them were married in other states. One was married in Canada. And they were seeking to compel the state of Kentucky to recognize their marriages. Uh, and this could have uh, it could sound trivial to some people. It means you know changing a name on a license, a uh, driver's license, or something like that. But it could also mean uh, affecting the way in which they jointly own property. It could mean adoption rights. It could mean employee benefit rights. So it could have a lot of consequences. So Judge Haburn ruled in favor of the plaintiffs. Uh, said that actually this was very much like Windsor. Uh, in Windsor, the question was whether there was a sufficient justification for the federal government to discriminate between same-sex and different-sex marriages in terms of the federal government recognizing them. So Windsor was a marriage recognition case. So Judge Haburn says, uh, you know, the Supreme Court said in Windsor there's no constitutionally adequate justification for the federal government to discriminate between them. I see no adequate justification for the state government to discriminate between them. Uh, this was one of uh, many cases where uh, the court has basically said, okay, on equal protection, everyone is posing this question. Heightened scrutiny, strict scrutiny, is sexual orientation a suspect classification? He says, I'm in the Sixth Circuit. In the Sixth Circuit, we have circuit case law saying it's not a suspect classification. And if I look at Windsor, I don't see the Supreme Court using that language. I don't see the Supreme Court saying that sexual orientation is a suspect classification. So as a typically cautious federal district judge, I'm just going to say rational basis test, and I find no rational basis. Now, Kentucky was unusual uh, because of the political situation in the state. Uh, socially, the state is rather conservative. The legislature, uh, I believe, is Republican-controlled. But the governor and the attorney general are both Democrats, mm -hmm. and those offices are elected separately. And the attorney general, in defending the state's ban on marriage recognition, did not make the usual arguments about channeling procreation or making sure that children are raised in the best environment and said nothing about children. The attorney general, Jack Conway, tried to defend solely on the grounds that this was the traditional definition of marriage, that Kentucky had a right to keep that definition until the political process decided to change it. And that was easy for the court to dispense with. Uh, the, the court said, well, clearly, look at Loving versus Virginia. It had been traditional to outlaw interracial marriage throughout the history of Virginia. Mm -hmm. 
uh, and the Supreme Court said, well, history must give way to equality, uh, and so it is here. And then dealing with those family-based arguments, of course, if the attorney general isn't going to make them, others are going to make them in amicus briefs. So the arguments were presented, and uh, the court once again uh, said those arguments just don't carry enough water to to justify this ban. Uh, Now, unlike the other district courts that have been issuing marriage equality rulings, Judge Habern did not automatically stay his ruling. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this led to a bunch of interesting subsequent developments during February in Kentucky. Uh, He issued his opinion, but he didn't issue an order. He said, I will schedule a further hearing later this month to decide what to do about an order. So he was giving the attorney general time to request a stay, and the attorney general didn't. But in the meantime, his opinion encouraged the plaintiff's attorneys to go out and recruit some same-sex couples in Kentucky who want to get married and add them to the lawsuit. So the uh, plaintiff's attorneys filed a motion to add additional plaintiffs and to expand the lawsuit to address the issue of same-sex marriage directly. Uh, At the hearing on February 26th, uh, Judge Habern's granted the motion to expand the lawsuit and said, I will be issuing my order within 24 hours. That woke up Attorney General Conway, who hadn't yet decided whether to appeal to the Sixth Circuit. He said, I don't know. I'm still thinking about it. Uh, So on the morning of the 27th, the Attorney General files a motion asking for a 90-day stay Mm -hmm. to give him time to decide whether to appeal and also to decide if he isn't appealing, how the state will comply with the order, what changes they have to make, what new forms they need, whatever. The judge issued his order that afternoon without mentioning the request for a stay. And when the attorney general's office said, how come you didn't? He said, well, you know, it's a motion. Doesn't the other side have a chance to respond? So he scheduled the hearing for February 28th on the motion for a stay. And on February 28th, he granted a short stay. He granted basically a three-week stay. Uh, And the attorney general said, well, I will make up my mind and I will announce what I'm going to do. And now we're getting to the point after we publish the February issue of Law Notes, but it's just a few days after. The Attorney General, in a public statement that's available on his website... Yeah, it's become viral. Yes, uh, and tear-stained at the end. He said he prayed on this, he agonized about it, he decided he cannot defend discrimination, he's not going to appeal. This was immediately followed by a statement from the governor, who's also a Democrat, And the governor said, well, we need an orderly appellate process. Uh, We can't do this based on a single trial judge's decision. And this is a point that Judge Habern addressed in his opinion. Uh, He said, this is not a single judge making this decision. This is a judge applying precedent that's accumulated from many courts over a period of time. He said, I'm not just doing this as my own little thing. It's sort of a civics lesson that he added to the end of his Mm -hmm. opinion. But uh, the governor pointed out that there's another marriage equality case on file in Kentucky, in Mm -hmm. state court. He said, we may end up having decisions going in different directions. We may end up with a chaotic situation here. Everyone tends to agree that until appellate courts rule on this, you know, we don't have a binding precedent. A subsequent judge could decide it differently. So he said, we got to appeal. He didn't say, and this is the interesting thing, 
He didn't say, I'm appealing to defend traditional marriage in Kentucky. He said, I'm appealing, and I'm going to hire outside counsel to represent the state since the attorney general has refused to do it. He said, I'm appealing so that we have an orderly appellate process and we get this question up to the Sixth Circuit and we have some binding appellate authority. So that's what's happening in Kentucky. It's being appealed by the governor. The attorney general is going to stay on the sidelines. And uh, I thought it was rather courageous. And I saw uh, yesterday that their senator, Rand Paul, said the uh, federal court decision was illegitimate. Yeah, but well, he has quite a skeptical view of the uh, the federal government. Right. He also thinks the 1964 yeah. Civil Rights Act right. is, is illegitimate. He's also so. not a lawyer; he's a doctor. So you know what? Is <laughs> Ophthalmologist, know right? Right. So so that that's what happened on uh, February 12th. We had this decision from Judge Habern, and then the next day, February 13th. Yeah. We got a, a decision from Judge Arenda L. Wright Allen. Yeah, and, and she went and for I, the uh, dramatic flair right. here with some of these this quotes. Is, right? Yeah, this is in the Eastern District of Virginia. Now, I have to make an apology right up front to Judge Wright Allen because in our story, we got her name mixed up a few times, and we called her Allen Wright once, and uh, we spelled right two different ways. It's like, you know, <laughs> okay. you're sort of rushing to get this issue and it's out. it's one of those things where the, the spell check doesn't catch right. it. Right, spell check doesn't, doesn't catch yeah, it. But so, anyway. so an apology. Yeah. And her decision was issued February 13th, but then she issued an amended decision February 14th, which didn't change anything really yeah. of substance. So basically, as you point out, she was, she was into quotes here. Yeah. So she has a preface, and her preface is a quote of Mildred Loving. Mildred Loving was one of the defendants and appellants in Loving versus Virginia, uh, the famous case in which the U.S. Supreme Court ruled back in 1967 that a state law making it a crime uh, to have an interracial marriage, a marriage between a white person and a person of color, violated the 14th Amendment. And uh, Mildred Loving, whose, uh, whose husband has since passed away, uh, has become outspoken on the issue of same-sex couples being entitled to marry. And the quote, which is worth reading an excerpt here, she said, The older generation's fears and prejudices have given way, and today's young people realize that if someone loves someone, they have a right to marry. I believe all Americans, no matter their race, no matter their sex, no matter their sexual orientation, should have that same freedom to marry. Government has no business imposing some people's religious belief over others. I support the freedom to marry for all. That's what loving the case and loving are all about. And uh, toward the end of her decision, she quotes from Abraham Lincoln. Uh, in a letter that he wrote in May 1860, while he was contemplating his bid for the Republican presidential nomination at that point, uh, obviously responding to a letter from someone asking for his position on slavery, he said, it cannot have failed to strike you that these men are for just the same thing, fairness, and fairness only. This, so far as in my power, they and all others shall have. And then echoing Lincoln's quote, the judge wrote, the men and women and the children too, whose voices join in noble harmony with plaintiffs today, also ask for fairness, and fairness only. This, so far as it is in this court's power, they and all others shall have. And with those kind of quotes, you know how the case came out. Yeah. Uh, the interesting thing uh, about the Virginia case, where uh, the judge did find it, it was unconstitutional uh, to deny the right to marry to same-sex couples in Virginia uh, or to uh, refuse recognition uh, to same-sex couples married elsewhere because both kinds of plaintiffs were involved in, in the suit. Uh, the interesting thing is there's another 
case pending in Virginia. Yeah. Uh, this case is in the uh, Eastern District. The other case is in the Western District, Harris versus Rainey. Yeah. This one is Bostick versus Rainey. The cases arose completely separately uh, right after the Windsor decision was announced last June 26, striking down Section 3 of DOMA, the ACLU and Lambda Legal announced that they were planning litigation in Virginia to challenge the ban on same-sex marriage. They were interviewing potential plaintiffs. But this gay couple in Norfolk weren't willing to wait, and they found a local attorney who was willing to file suit on their behalf. And as soon as news came out that the suit had been filed, they were contacted by the American Foundation for Equal Rights, which had litigated the Proposition 8 case in California, and said, hey, would you like to have David Boyes and Ted Olson represent you in this case? And the plaintiffs jumped at it. Their local lawyer wasn't uh, going to object to being associated with such renowned co-counsel. And so Boyes and Olson took over the case, and they pushed it fast. Uh, One thing they did right away was to amend the complaint to add a married uh, married plaintiff from out of state, uh, that is, Virginians who had married out of state, so they could expand the case to cover both marriage and recognition, and they pushed quickly for a uh, summary judgment. Meanwhile, Lambda and the ACLU on their case, uh, they filed just a few weeks after the Boston case was filed in the uh, Western District, and they decided to push first for class certification before filing uh, for a uh, summary judgment. And they got their class certification a few weeks ago. And they have made a motion to try to consolidate their case on appeal with the Bostic case on the theory that the Bostic case only represents the two plaintiff couples in the case, and at this point, the only real defendants in the case are two county clerks. Uh, And meanwhile, Lambda and ACLU say, in our case, we have a class action representing all same-sex couples in the state. And therefore, it makes sense to combine the two so whatever the, the Fourth Circuit decides, it will be binding on the whole state. Yeah. I don't know if that's going to happen. There, There is, uh, and the, the gay press has been pointing this out, there's a bit of a tussle to see right. who's going to go to the Supreme Court and argue the marriage case. Yeah. And my money is on the National Center for Lesbian Rights and Shannon Minter because they are now co-counsel in the Utah case, mm-hmm. and that's the first one that's going to be argued in the Court of Appeals yeah. on April 10th in the Tenth Circuit. So at any rate, we have the situation in Virginia. Uh, the uh, the clerks in uh, who are the defendants in Bostick v. Rainey have announced they'll appeal. Uh, in this case, the governor of Virginia and the attorney general of Virginia who were sued in this case are no longer the governor and the attorney general because of the elections. Right. Uh, so the new governor and attorney general said, we love same-sex marriage. Right. We love marriage equality. We're not going to defend the ban. But uh, the state is still... A defendant. Rainey is the registrar, uh, the state registrar, who is in charge of recording marriages and supervising the marriage license process. And there was just word that they're going to appeal also, even though they're not defending. They said, in order, because we know this has to go to an appellate level, uh, we're going to join so there's no question that the case is properly before the Fourth Circuit. But we are not going to argue in support of the ban. In fact, the Solicitor General of Virginia was sent by the Attorney General to the argument before. Judge Allen on the uh, summary judgment motion to argue in favor of granting summary judgment to the plaintiffs. Yeah. So this is going to be this is going to look a little bit like the Windsor case looked. Yeah. Uh, although instead of having Congress intervening in this case, we have uh, some clerks who have invited in the usual suspects. Yes. You know, uh, the Alliance defending freedom, uh, 
and you know, it, it occurred to me, they say the freedom they're defending is religious freedom. And they're only defending religious freedom if your religion agrees with them. Right. They're not defending those religious groups that want to allow same-sex yeah, A bit of a misnomer. A bit of a misnomer. Yeah. So that's number two. And then there's number three, sort of bringing up the rear last month, is taxes. And there are also two federal cases in Texas in different district courts uh, on marriage equality. And there's also a case that was argued a few months ago in the Supreme Court on whether same-sex couples married elsewhere can get divorced in Texas. And the Supreme Court's taken its sweet time on that. It's been a while yeah. since the oral arguments were held. But in this case, uh, we have District Judge uh, – let me get my notes up here – Orlando L. Garcia mm -hmm. of the Western District of Texas in San Antonio, yeah. who ruled on February 26th in De Leon versus Perry that the refusal of Texas to allow same-sex couples to marry violates the 14th Amendment. Uh, and he took pretty much the most conservative route on there. Uh, he uh, said that there's no rational basis here. Uh, the state had raised the issue because this case involved both recognition and the right to marry. The state raised Section 2 of DOMA. And Section 2 of DOMA was the provision that said that no state is required to give full faith and credit to same-sex marriages contracted in other states. So he said, based on that, you can't hold us in violation of the 14th Amendment because Congress has given us permission hmm. to refuse recognition. And Judge Garcia said, well, hold on a minute. Congress may have authority under uh, the Full Faith and Credit Clause. There's a, a little uh, clause at the end of the Full Faith and Credit Clause that gives Congress the authority to legislate on what effect full faith and credit would have. He said, you know, maybe Congress has uh, authority to legislate on this, but Congress, he said, does not have the power to authorize individual states to violate the Equal Protection Clause. Right. And uh, that's a point I've actually been making, I think, in prior podcasts as well, that on the recognition issue, Section 2 of DOMA is irrelevant to dead letter because the issue is an equal protection issue. And Congress cannot in any way... Uh, cut down on equal protection. So I think we're, we're doing well on that. Uh, also worth pointing out that Judge Garcia, of course, quotes from Justice Scalia's dissent in Lawrence versus Texas to say that given the way the Supreme Court decided that case, the sodomy case, which ca arose in Texas, right. given the way the court decided that, that, that this case has to come out the way it has to come out, yeah. uh, Justice Scalia said in that case that uh, the court seems to be ruling out tradition and moral judgments as a basis for legislation, yeah. at least when it raises equal protection issues. And there's no issue in Texas with uh, the attorney general uh, uh, not appealing, right? No. The attorney general happens to be running for governor. Right. And just uh, after this issue went to press, but just uh, this week, on Tuesday, he won uh, the Republican primary. So yeah. he's going to be the uh, the candidate for governor, and he is firmly opposed to same-sex marriage, and he's willing to spend millions of dollars of the state's money to take this to the Fifth Circuit, yeah. which is probably not a bad thing because we don't have a case pending in the Fifth Circuit until this yeah. one gets there. And it would be good to have a case pending in every circuit where uh, there are states without marriage equality yeah. by the time we get to the Supreme Court. All right. Well, thank you for that uh, great wrap-up, Art, of a lot of, uh, a lot of big news from the last month on the marriage yeah. front. The only other thing that we should add quickly, because I know our clock is ticking, <laughs> in the Ninth Circuit, yeah. the case is pending uh, on Nevada, yeah. and uh, 
during February, the Attorney General and the Governor of Nevada threw in the towel, basically, at least at the Ninth Circuit. They said, now that the Ninth Circuit is using heightened scrutiny in sexual orientation cases, we can't defend the marriage ban in the Ninth Circuit. That doesn't mean they drop it out of the case entirely. If it gets to the Supreme Court, they will certainly argue the way they're going to argue. But in the Ninth Circuit, they say no. And they pulled their reply brief, right? They pulled their, they pulled yeah. their, their final brief in the case yeah. because they said our final brief was written before that development and it's now rendered irrelevant, yeah. basically, and inadequate. All right. Well, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to switch to uh, some adoption news out of Idaho. All right, we're back talking about uh, an Idaho Supreme Court case. Uh, Inri Doe uh, decided in February that uh, ruled on whether a uh, same-sex co-parent can adopt a partner's child. Can you take us through this one, Art? Yeah, this this is an interesting case involving a uh, lesbian couple who have been together a long time. They decided to have kids together. Uh, the first kid they had through donor insemination, the second through adoption, and uh, one of the women, Renee Simpson, gave birth to the child and adopted uh, their, their second son. So they have two sons. Uh, and they had a commitment ceremony in Boise. They, they are Idahoans. They had a commitment ceremony in Boise in 1997 when civil unions became available in Vermont. They went to Vermont and got a civil union in 2002 uh, when – the right to marry was revived in California last year with the Hollingsworth decision. They went to California and got married as well. And after getting married in California, uh, Darcy Simpson uh, petitioned to adopt the two little boys as a co-parent. And the, uh, the trial judge, in a rather unusual situation, because no one was opposing this, I mean, this was an unopposed petition, and then just out of the blue, the trial judge dismisses the petition without holding a hearing, without giving them a chance to respond to the judge's concerns, just said, well, you know, you can't do this under the Idaho adoption statute because there's nothing in the statute that authorizes co-parent adoptions yeah. of same-sex couples. And you're not married. And normally uh, when someone is going to adopt uh, children uh, of a parent, and be related, it's going to be a step-parent adoption. And in a step-parent adoption, you know, there's a marriage. obviously the, there's a marriage, yeah. and the law is uh, accommodating that. Uh, so they appealed to the Idaho Supreme Court, which unanimously reversed on February 10th. And the court first addressed the due process issues in this case. They said it was absolutely improper for the trial court to just sua sponte, dismiss, without even giving them a chance to have a hearing, because the adoption statute itself says that someone who petitions to adopt the child is entitled to a hearing. So there's a big due process question here. But more to the point, they said, this misconstrues the Idaho adoption statute. There are adoption statutes in some states that would create significant problems. But Idaho has a statute that says any minor child may be adopted by any adult person residing in and having residence in Idaho. Now, there are some requirements, obviously. Uh, The child has to be available for adoption, or if the child is not a ward of the state or is not being voluntarily given up for adoption, uh, the uh, legal parent has to give consent, at the very least. Right. Uh, And uh, that was done in this case, of course. Renee gave consent. 
Uh, and so the court said, look, plain reading of the statute. And the, the trial judge had said, I don't think it's consistent with the legislative intent of the Idaho legislature to approve this adoption. Now, basically, she's just trying to channel the legislature and saying, I don't think they'd approve of you know allowing this lesbian couple, uh, mainly because the Idaho legislature has not been very pro-gay supportive. There's no law banning discrimination. Uh, they outlaw same-sex marriage. You know, the Idaho legislature is not a place you go for gay rights nah. resolutions. So the judge was saying, well, I don't think the legislators would think this. But the Supreme Court said, we're sort of bound by the language they adopted. And when you have plain language as to which there's only one possible meaning, you don't look for legislative intent. You don't try to figure out what the legislature was thinking. You just look at the words and you give them their ordinary meaning. Uh, now, there are some linguistic critics who say there is no such thing as plain meaning right. and that all language is embedded in culture and, you know, words are symbols for ideas and, yeah. you know, we have to probe further. But for the five justices of this court, this was enough. But yeah. one of the judges, in a concurring opinion, Judge Horton, sounded a cautionary note. He pointed out that under the Idaho statute, uh, the trial judge who's faced with an adoption petition can terminate the parental rights of the parent who had consented to give their child for adoption. So he said, in this kind of case, a second parent adoption under the statute, they're taking a risk that the trial judge may decide to grant the adoption and then terminate the parental rights of the birth mother. <laughs> he said, they better hope that the judge doesn't do that. Yeah. Now, it would be ridiculous for the judge to do that because none of the parties are asking the judge to do right. that. Uh, in this case, they did do a home study. They got a social worker to certify the appropriateness of the home and that uh, the potential adoptive parent was an appropriate person, a fit person to be a parent. Uh, so there would no, be no basis for a judge to do that. But Judge Horton points out it might be a good idea for the legislature to revise the statute to make it clear when, and when a judge can terminate parental rights in a case where it's not being requested. Okay. All right. Well, thank you very much, Art. Um, we will take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the horrible new law signed, in, uh, signed into law by the president of Uganda. We're back uh, talking about the, uh, unfortunately, new law in Uganda. Uh, Art, can you tell us uh, what the president of Uganda uh, signed this uh, in February? Well, this, is, this received a lot of international attention, yeah. and we don't, we don't usually devote a lot of time on the, on the podcast to international developments, but yeah. this is part of a cultural move in Africa that's very alarming. Yeah. Uh, on the continent of Africa, the majority of countries have criminal penalties still, for consensual sodomy, and this is really a relic of colonial times. Uh, these laws were introduced by the European powers who had colonies in Africa, right. and the ones that were former British colonies, they had laws that were very much like the law that's been challenged in India, is challenged in Singapore, yeah. uh, laws that were repealed in places like Australia and New Zealand. Uh, Singapore, there's been litigation. Uh, so uh, Uganda has had uh, criminal law. But in some ways, this is uh, part of a, a sort of backlash in Africa to developments elsewhere. Yeah. And some of it has been fomented by uh, religious leaders in the U.S. who, seeing 
that they're not getting anywhere here are going to other parts of the world. And there's actually a lawsuit pending in the Federal District Court in Massachusetts by a Uganda gay rights group against an American minister who is accused of having come into U Uganda and stirred up trouble and tried to get the government to toughen up their laws, uh, not just against sodomy, but against homosexuals as such. Right. So this law, which was for a long time referred to as the Kill the Gays Bill. Thankfully, because, they, they uh, have changed that yeah, slightly. Slightly. Well, the original version of the bill uh, provided for the death sentence for what they called aggravated homosexuality, <laughs> which I guess was I should be laughing. repeat offenders and uh, cases of uh, same-sex rape or things of that sort. Uh, and then, uh, because there was so much outcry by national organi international organizations, the UN, uh, various human rights groups, the U.S. government, other governments, uh, they said they would moderate it. They would they'd reduce it to a jail term. But the problem was it was always difficult while this measure was pending to figure out exactly what the final text was. It just kept changing, and what people said about it kept changing. Yeah. And no one really knew until the legislature uh, passed it and even then, the text wasn't made widely available, and there remained speculation. And it wasn't until President Museveni finally signed it on February 24th that the text actually get, became available online. And I was pretty shocked when I look at it because it imposes life in prison for what would strike many of us as pretty innocuous stuff. Uh, life in prison for uh, the participants in a same-sex wedding ceremony. The officiant gets well, a jail term. Don't go on a shorter. trip to Uganda now, Art. Yeah. Well, well certainly, a... don't go to Uganda to get married. <laughs> uh, and uh, life imprisonment for consensual sodomy. Uh, life imprisonment for attempted consensual sodomy, or attempted sodomy. I mean, people can attempt and don't consummate the act and still go to prison for life yeah. if it's proven that they were attempting to do it. I mean, this is pretty severe stuff. Yeah. And, you know, people have been focusing more on Nigeria which toughened their sodomy law by, uh, I think, doubling the prison terms in January and extending it beyond uh, sexual acts to include same-sex marriage uh, as a, a criminal offense and also uh, advocating for gay rights as a criminal offense. The Uganda statute picks this up as well, advocating for gay rights. You can get prison term. If you're an organization that is seen as advocating for gay rights, your organization will be declared outlaw and uh, there could be jail terms for the leaders and stuff like that so I'm worried about the group that's suing in Massachusetts yeah. uh, now the president had uh, sought uh, a, a report from a panel of scientists on whether homosexuality was genetic and he got uh, apparently the, the report that he wanted to support it well th th this, is, this is odd as well because uh, he convened an expert panel which was supposed to advise him. He said, if this is genetic, we shouldn't make it, you know, we shouldn't punish it this way. If it's genetic, we should try to, we should figure out a way to accommodate it, although we may uh, still have criminal penalties. Uh, but he, he felt that he wanted to have some scientific advice here. And the panel reported back to him, but not in writing initially. It was just a meeting that he had with the panel, and they said that they couldn't find that any one gene had been identified as the cause of homosexuality. Well, most scientists who are studying this issue would agree yeah. that, in fact, 
uh, human sexuality is a complicated phenomenon that there are genes that are implicated in it, but there's no one gene that you call the gay gene, and that it's probably some combination of genetics and other biological factors and perhaps some social factors. There are all kinds of things that go into influencing human sexuality, but the scientists who have seriously studied it have said it's clearly not a choice. It's clearly various forces that mold uh, the way people react to their environment. Uh, and some of the scientists on, the, on this panel said their work has been misrepresented, that uh, the president seized on that finding that there was no one gene and also that evidently this was a majority vote in the task force, that it is possible to cure homosexuality, uh, something that has been hotly disputed. Uh, but the president went ahead and signed it, and now some of the task force people are protesting and saying that their research is being misused here. And uh, there's an interesting article in the New York Times about sort of the complicated political calculus that the United States and other countries are facing in pulling aid potentially from Uganda because a lot of that aid goes, goes to fighting AIDS. And uh, is that really a way right. to, to help Uganda by pulling AIDS funding? And, and also some of the aid is because Uganda and some of the other countries who we have some problems with over their anti-gay policies uh, have played an important role in helping to coordinate efforts against terrorism. Yeah. Uh, so there's, there's a difficult calculus there. The World Bank has held up a $90 million loan. Uh, several countries have held up money that was going to Uganda, and everyone's sort of stewing about what to do about this. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for that report, Art, and we're going to wrap up with our last uh, Of Note segment and talk about uh, a Puerto Rican federal judge who uh, has some doubts about bisexuality. We're back, Art, uh, with our last case in our Of Note segment here. We're going to talk about uh, United States versus Delgado Marrero, uh, which was recently decided by the First Circuit. Um, and it's actually a, it's a, an appeal of a criminal, uh, a criminal trial uh, for gun, drug and gun charges. Um, sort of the, the facts of the case uh, lead us to uh, the, why we're talking about it on the Lesbian Gay Law Notes podcast. But uh, we'll start with some of the facts of the case, Art. Well, the, uh, the thing here was that there were these uh, two San Juan police officers who got uh, sort of pulled into a sting operation yeah. and then were prosecuted. And uh, in trying to uh, challenge it, uh, they're raising entrapment charges, uh, entra the entrapment theory, uh, Raquel Delgado, who right. is one of the uh, defendants, and uh, she argued that one of the officers, uh, a male, yeah. who had uh, induced her to participate in a sham transaction for the purpose of the sting operation by appealing to a long-lasting friendship and romantic relationship between the two of them. And government prosecutors, in responding to this theory, uh, wanted to present evidence that she had had a lesbian relationship with another San Juan police officer. Uh, on the theory that that would cut against the idea that a male officer would be playing on a romantic, uh, past the romantic relationship. Yeah. And uh, the judge sustained an objection uh, to a question about the relationship, but the government persisted when they were cross-examining uh, Delgado's husband. Yeah. Now, 
as soon as I saw it was her husband, I'm thinking, all right, so what's going on here? Yeah. She has a husband. She's had an affair going with a, a, a female police officer. Yeah. Uh, you know, what's what's going on here? Yeah. And uh, the judge finally allowed the questioning to come in, which then is was one of the bases for the appeal that, yeah. the, that the judge aired in allowing now, the, the, the testimony to come in. Yeah. But at a sidebar on the objection, uh, the judge stated on the record why he overruled the objection. He said, this evidence contradicted Delgado's defense of a romantic relationship with the officer because, quote, usually lesbians or gay people don't cross lines to the opposite sex. And this is what he had learned and seen in his 67 years of age. In other words, in 67 years, he had come to believe that bisexuals don't exist, that people who might... uh, be attracted either to men or women, depending on the circumstances, depending on who the people are involved, yeah. just don't exist. That if uh, someone has a husband and kids, then they can't possibly be a lesbian. Yeah. Now, uh, sort of the First Circuit, in a, sort of a funny fashion, because they ultimately say this is harmless error and they yeah. weren't going to overturn it, but they, I think the sort of very strong language the the district court judge used led them to sort of maybe them to 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 hope that he doesn't do this again. So they gave a very long analysis on uh, what was wrong with this. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, they said that no evidence was presented that Delgado was not interested in sexual relationships with men or even that she preferred women to men as sexual partners and that the evidence of one relationship with another woman had at best marginal relevance to the question whether she had a sexual relationship with the police officer who it was alleged had uh, pulled her into the sting operation. Uh, and this, of course, and the contra is that there's a very well-established federal precedent that um, homosexuality has the potential to unfairly prejudice a right. defendant. Now, here's the interesting thing. and uh, I mean, the court doesn't really go into this too much, but I think it's worth discussing, and that is whether this well-established notion that the sexual orientation of a defendant or of a witness uh, is presumed to be prejudicial, that it's going to make the jury think that they're less honest, that they're more likely to be engaged in criminal actions, or that they're more likely to be untruthful or whatever. Mm. Uh, you know, what is what is the continuing status of this kind of presumption or proposition? Uh, we've seen this play out in the area of defamation law. Right where traditionally uh, calling someone gay was just presumed to be devastatingly harmful to to their uh, reputation and so damaging that we wouldn't even require uh, proof of special damages in a slander case. I think it was uh, and, Judge Denny Chin yeah. at the Southern District had recently rejected that, yeah, right? Yeah, he, he had rejected that. And, in fact, the New York uh, Appellate Division uh, upstate had rejected that recently in the Court of Appeals that I'd review. And, and New York... Uh, which you th- you would think that with the sodomy law in New York having been struck down in 1980 yeah. and with the uh, employment, uh, the Sexual Orientation Non-Discrimination Act being passed, that it would be an easy move for the courts to say, well, you can't just presume that calling someone gay is going to be harmful to their reputation anymore. Uh, but it's taken New York courts a long time to get there, and many courts, many states around the country haven't gotten there yet. Yeah. It's been a slow process. But, you know... That's that's reflected here. To to what extent uh, can introducing evidence that a witness or a defendant or a plaintiff, for that matter, uh, either is gay or that there was evidence that they engaged in same-sex conduct, that that would automatically be seen as somehow prejudicial to their case or that a jury is more likely than not to discredit their testimony 
have we moved to the point in social acceptance of gay people in the United States where those sorts of propositions are no longer self-evident? And it will be interesting to see a court sort of self-consciously address that point. They don't hear. Uh, they just say, well, you know, uh, the panel here said it was patently obvious that the evidence's minimal probative value was substantially outweighed by the dangers of unfair prejudice, but it's a good thing that it's harmless error in this case because there's other overwhelming evidence that tends to confirm. Yeah. And the, the other, the, the male co-defendant in this case uh, also raised on appeal that evidence was uh, introduced about his sexual orientation that prejudiced him in the jury. And yeah. once again, the court said, well, didn't affect the verdict. Any such error was harmless because the evidence of his guilt was overwhelming. Yeah, they had video of the sham transaction, right. so it was pretty locked down that they actually did it. Um, but luckily for both of them, they uh, they were successful on other parts of their appeal. So right. one of them is getting a new trial, and one of them is either getting a new a new sentence or a new trial. So they got they got something out of their appeal. Yeah, but it's it's sort of interesting, and uh, this seems to come up with some regularity. I'd say every every other month or so. We get a case where the court is dealing with issues about the sexual orientation of parties or witnesses, uh, and it's a recurring question. I think that it's time for uh, some kind of defin definitive ruling on this, although obviously it's going to be fact-specific in any particular case. Right. But is it really appropriate at this point in our developing social history? Certainly, if the Supreme Court in the next year or two issues a marriage equality ruling, this is going to really be open for question. At, at what point do we continue to sort of let the dead hand of the past uh, of prejudice against gay people dictate how the courts now are dealing with these evidentiary yeah. questions? It's a fascinating question. Um, all right. Thank you so much, Art, and thank you to our listeners for listening to another podcast. Uh, if you've enjoyed uh, listening to us, uh, please rate us highly on iTunes. Um, if you uh, want to read more about these stories, uh, you can subscribe to Law Notes at uh, le-gal.org. Uh, please also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at LGBT Bar NY. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you in April.